Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Wait a minute, I tell you. You ain't heard nothing. You want to hear Toot Toot Tootsie? All right. Hold on. Hold on. Lou, listen. Play Toot Toot Tootsie. Three chorus, you understand? And the third chorus, I whistle. I'll give it to him hard and heavy. Go right ahead. Toot Toot Tootsie. Goodbye. Toot Toot Tootsie. Don't cry. The little Choo Choo Train. That takes me away from you. The jazz singer opened at the Broadway Theatre on October the 6th, 1927, and left most New York songwriters unperturbed. The theatre season just ended had seen over 250 new productions. Business was booming, and no composer was much attracted by crude talking pictures. It was another October, October the 24th, 1929, that was to prove far more significant. Wall Street crashed, Ziegfeld and other big show producers went bust, and Broadway slumped. Songwriters were forced to look elsewhere, and the only place to go was Hollywood. So in their droves they began heading west, or as they called it, after the most famous of the cross-country trains, taking the chief. Out where they say, let us be gay, I'm going Hollywood. With a sun-kissed baby And I'm on my way Here's my beret I'm going Hollywood Ladies and gentlemen May I introduce myself My name is Jack Benny And I was asked to be Master of Ceremonies For this occasion uh, I'd like to identify These boys for you So in case you find them Prowling around your home Some night You'll know how to address them Mr. Nashia Herr Brown The composer at the piano And Mr. Arthur Free The lyricist who also writes the word. These two boys wrote Doll Dance, Broadway Melody, You Were Meant For Me, The Pagan Love Song, and The Wedding of the Painted Doll. It's a holiday today, the wedding of the painted doll. It's a jolly day, the news is spreading all around the The first musical score conceived for the screen was called, ironically, the Broadway Melody, and was written by Brown and Freed, two Californian songwriters appropriately. From that modest beginning came an industry that soon supplanted both Broadway and Tin Pan Alley as America's principal supplier of hits, a position it was to hold for the next 30 years. Of course, apart from Brown and Freed, there wasn't much local talent, so the studios turned their attention to luring Broadway's biggest names. Some, like Ira Gershwin, loved the lazy West Coast lifestyle. Others, like Richard Rogers, loathed it, and sometimes both extremes could be found within one writing team. Jerome Kern prospered in Hollywood. His lyricist, Oscar Hammerstein, didn't, and Kern eventually turned to other partners. Oscar's son, James Hammerstein. Jerry was ten years older than my father, about, and uh, that would have an effect. He was very comfortable in, in Hollywood. Um, and he seemed to want a kind of contentment, I guess, where um, my father couldn't seem to breathe away from New York City. <laughs> uh, needed the smog. I, under, 
I don't know. Uh, uh, Jerry wrote some fine stuff with uh, with Dorothy Fields afterwards. Uh, he wrote a couple of movies with Dad, and then he wrote with Dorothy, and um, he seemed to do better with the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers kind of uh, team. Nothing's impossible, I have found. When my chin is on the ground, I pick myself up, dust myself off, start all over again. Don't lose your confidence if you slip. Be grateful for a pleasant trip and pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start all over again. Work like a soul inspired till the battle of the day is won. You may be sick and tired, but you'll be a man, my son. Will you remember the famous men who had to fall to rise again? So take a deep breath, pick yourself up. Dust yourself off, start all over again. I'll get some self-assurance if your endurance is great. I'll learn by easy stages if you're courageous and wait. To feel the strength I want to, I must hang on to your hand. Maybe by the time I'm 50, I'll get up and do a nifty. All right, I'll show you again. Now remember, three steps to the left, three steps to the right. That's the right. And turn. Right. One, two, three. One, two, three. I know, I'm fine. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start all over again. Listen, Don't. no one could teach you to dance in a million years. Take my advice and save your money. Now, um, how did you say that last step went? Uh, uh, oh, yes. Uh, Shall we try it right through? I grew up as a little child uh, amongst the Dorothy Fields and Jerry Kearns. Uh, I think they wrote good movies. I don't think Dad and, and Jerry wrote good movies together. I don't think Dad really came to grips with the form, maybe. It didn't interest him enough. Because Jerry stayed in Hollywood, I couldn't figure out why, but Dad came back. I think that's what really split it, the 3,000 miles between the two coasts. And it became uh, difficult. And my father just didn't cut Hollywood. He just didn't like it. He didn't like writing for movies. He didn't like going to the studio every morning, uh, being picked up in a limousine and, and, and Shanghai to write in some <laughs> studio. He just hated it all. And uh, so I think that's what split them up. Well, w w you, you say that, but of course, one of the loveliest songs by Kern and Hammerstein did come from a film, The Folks Who Live on the Hill. And I wondered whether your father, did he consider that? one of his great songs. Yes, I think he would recognize that that was one of his really, really good songs. Who live on the hill. 
all credit to Kern and Hammerstein that despite Irene Dunn and that arrangement in the film High, Wide and Handsome, the song survived to become a major standard. But it wasn't really performers and orchestrators. Hammerstein disliked the system. Sometimes a studio would assign three songwriting teams to one picture. They'd all write songs in competition with each other, and then the studio would pick the best, or maybe go get somebody entirely different. This was tough on established names, but new writers, refugees from New York's depression, were grateful for the opportunities. Burton Lane was just 20 when he arrived from Manhattan with his lyricist Harold Adamson. He went to a party thrown by a friend of his brother, and almost immediately someone approached him with what was to become a familiar request. We need a song. We had just started one before we came to California. I had written a melody and I had given Harold the title. Uh, well, the next day we had it, and he asked us to come out of the studio, and he brought us to meet uh, David Selznick, who was the producer of the film. And while we were walking to Selznick's office, he said to me, uh, gee, Bert, I hope this is good. We've been thrown out three times with other writers, <laughs> which really, <laughs> this was my first experience on, on a lot of a, of a major studio. Well, strangely enough, we went to uh, Selznick and we played the song for him and he liked it a lot. And then he called Joan Crawford. Now, this is uh, like two days after we got to California. I find myself in Joan Crawford's dressing room uh, playing this song for her. And she liked it and a deal was made. And, and we sold that song and two others. And Joan Crawford, who can't sing, uh, was dancing by, I think, with either Franchiton or Clark Abel as a band was playing the song. And uh, I was asked, can you give her something to do in the song? And I thought of a little phrase. The song went, everything I have is yours, you're part of me. And then I added a little figure, which became a part of the song, da-da-dum, da-da-da-dum, which she hummed. <laughs> everything I Theater way downtown in New York that show old films. And I went to see a revival of Dancing Lady, and the theater was jammed. It was the, in fact, they didn't even have seats, they had steps that people sat on. It was that kind of a setup. And when she did this little hum, they cheered. <laughs> I thought it was I thought it was terrible then, and I thought it was terrible now. But they cheered, so they, apparently she, they liked what she had done. 
memory, as sung by Bob Hope and Shirley Ross, was one of 1938's outstanding song hits. Thanks for the memory, with those same lovebirds, is one of the new movie season's outstanding romantic motion pictures. Paramount now brings you a recorded preview of a grand new song from Thanks for the Memory. It is called Two Sleepy People and is sung by Bob Hope and Shirley Ross. Two sleepy people by dawn's early light and too much in love to say goodnight. Here we are, out of cigarettes Holding hands and yawning, look how late it gets Two sleepy people with nothing to say And too much in love to break away Do you remember the nights we had to linger in the hall? <laughs> Father didn't like you at all Whatever happened to him? Remember the reason why we married in the fall? To rent this little nest and get a bit of rest. But here we are, just about the same. Foggy little fella, drowsy little dame. Two sleepy people by dawn's early light. Too much in love to say goodnight. Here we are. Gee, don't we look a mess? Lipstick on my collar. Whose? Wrinkles in your dress. Two sleepy people who know very well they're too much in love to break the spell. One of Frank Lesser's very first hit songs. It was all very well for Rogers and Hart to sit by the pool moaning into their margaritas that they didn't get as much respect as on Broadway. But for Frank Lesser and the other lesser names, a studio contract was a passport from abject poverty to instant wealth. Burton Lane. Well, I must tell you, before, before he had his contract at Paramount, he, he asked me to come over one evening. He was living on a, in a tiny apartment, and I'm sitting there with him. We're talking about songs, and he's showing me some lyrics. And he suddenly said to me, uh, have you had your dinner? Do you want to have some dinner with us? I said, I've had my dinner, Frank. It's, uh, and what they had for dinner was an apple between him and his wife and a can of baked beans. And this was just before he was signed to a contract. Now, Frank gets his contract. And I walked in the first morning, and there was a guy measuring him for shorts, for shirts, for ties, <laughs> I mean, suits. And he just went haywire. <laughs> but... Uh, he had written a song with uh, Manning Sherwin, Says My Heart, with that lyric, which I had never heard. And uh, I came to the studio one morning, and two producers were sitting in the music department waiting for me. And they said, uh, you know this lyric of Says My Heart? I said, no, I, I, I mean, I heard it once, but I, you know, I, I, I really don't know the song. Well, we don't want the melody that's written for it and we want you to write a new one. How soon can you do it? So I said, well, when do you need it? Well, we're here. <laughs> so I said, well, wait outside and let me have a little time. Let me see what I can do. And I took the lyric and went into my office and closed the door, and about 10 minutes later, I had this melody. 
you know, when you're under contract to a studio, you work on a number of pictures at one night. You do a song here, and you do four songs there, and three songs here. Uh, so I wasn't keeping track of what state or uh, what, uh, how finished or unfinished a picture was. Well, this picture had been close to being finished, and uh, within a few months it was out on the market, and suddenly uh, I'm listening to the hit parade, and the first time it's on, it was number two. And I hadn't even listened to the radio to, to hear whether, you know, what was happening with the song, and suddenly it was number two. And it must have been on 15 weeks. It was number one. The, the second week it was on, it was number one. Southern and Robert Young, pretending to create Lady Be Good, actually written by George and Ira Gershwin, who took rather longer over it. In Hollywood, though, the qualities most prized were speed and versatility, and it could be a useful apprenticeship. Julie Stein has always preferred the theatre. Nevertheless, to get to Broadway, he first had to go to Hollywood. No one knew about me in Broadway until I went to Hollywood and was given the chance how could your buck get into the theater? Mm. So I went out to California. I was a vocal coach first, 20th Century Fox. And then you worked on a lot of westerns, I think. Yeah, well, after 20th Century Fox, Daryl mm. Zanuck yeah. told me that I should become a song. He felt that I had the talent to be mm. a good songwriter. So he got me a job at Republic Pictures, which I wrote songs for Gene Autry. But I was learning all the time, you see. I, was, I hadn't ex thrown my real talents. I was just getting to be. And then finally I wrote with Frank Lester, I wrote my first big song, I Don't Want to Walk Without You, Baby, and then from then on, never stopped. I don't want to walk without you, baby. Walk without my arm about
song and the partnership between Julie Stein and Frank Lesser came about because of the system in Hollywood of loaning contract songwriters to other studios. In this case, John Wayne went to Paramount for one picture in exchange for Frank Lesser, who wasn't too happy about being loaned from a major to a minor studio. I did a, a little musical at Republic and they, I asked for Frank Lesser to be borrowed from Paramount. He was working at Paramount to come to Republic, and of course he hated me for it because he's, he felt it was being demeaned, and I think I was demeaning him. I betrayed him, how dare I take him away? Anyhow, he sat down and uh, he said, well, play me something. I played, da 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 He said, shh, never play that here again. <laughs> we'll go to Paramount and write it there. <laughs> Frank Lesser was that kind of schemer. He knew there was no point in wasting a good song on Republic Pictures, who specialised in undemanding westerns. In this scene, the man is eating watermelon, one director told Julie Stein, so that's what the song has to be about. Dutifully, Julie Stein wrote a number called I Love Watermelon. But Frank Lesser wasn't going to waste his time on that sort of thing. The major studios owned their own music publishing firms. They had access to all the big radio shows. And if they couldn't make your song a hit, nobody could. To the filmmakers, a pop song was a good way of promoting the picture, no matter how unrelated they were to each other. The Gershwins had satirised the blandness of movie-themed songs as long ago as 1931, with a number that went, blah, 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 moon, blah, 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 above, blah, 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 croon, blah, 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 love. But it didn't stop the film studios wanting them. Then they began branching out commissioning songs that were inspired by films but not actually in them, like Gone with the Wind, or in serious dramatic pictures, taking a theme and turning it into a song, as Johnny Mercer did here. Laura is the face in the misty light Footsteps that you hear down the hall The laugh that floats on a summer night That you can never quite recall And you see Laura on the train that is passing through Those eyes, how familiar they seem She gave your very first kiss to you That was Laura 
much is only a dream. Laura was written by a great arranger and a good friend of mine, Dave Raxon. Wonderful scorer. So he, in his scoring, he happened to write a theme. Da, da, da. It was no, not called Laura. There was no song called Laura. There was never a Laura now. When you went to see the movie first time, there was no such Laura. Somebody says, you know, that theme in the picture would make a good thing. Johnny said, I'd like to start. So, so Johnny, a year later, wrote some words. Then it became Laura. Now, that's not writing a pop song. That's a, a lyric writer saying I'm inspired. Like someone setting words to uh, uh, many, many themes that happened before. Yeah. The lyric writers cashed in on a lot of, of, of lyrics, like taking old Tchaikovsky yeah. themes and making songs out of them, you know. And usually with dire results. If Hollywood treated its staff composers badly, it treated the old masters even worse. Of all the lyrics put to classical tunes, few have any merit. I quite like, though, the deal Johann Strauss got from It's Always Fair Weather, the story of three old army buddies who meet up for a reunion after the war. It is, I suppose, still desecration, but thanks to Betty Comden and Adolf Green, it is creative desecration. You don't always know where uh, these ideas come from. Yes, That's we what's want exciting to make about a, it. an ironic sequence of these three guys who no longer could communicate. Had nothing to say other. to each other. And there they were in this slightly posh restaurant and the drone of the musical ensemble. And the deadly yeah. silence that can exist mm. when people have met and used to have something in common and have absolutely nothing to say. Mm. We try that grinding feeling of, what am I doing here? Mm. So we, we did so capture the, that, I think. <laughs> we felt the gaiety of the music, plus its banal insistence against their bitterness and anger at themselves and one another was sort of a great find for us. Yes. In a good theatrical moment. I shouldn't have come. I shouldn't have come. This thing's a mistake. An awful mistake. That guy's such a snob. And who is that hick? Can these be the guys I once thought? I could never live without. Not surprisingly, It's Always Fair Weather was an MGM movie. In the late 40s and 50s, when it came to musicals, MGM had the best writers, directors, arrangers, and stars, particularly Fred Astaire, the favorite performer of so many composers and lyricists. As Jerome Kern put it, Freddie has class. Ira Gershwin said he'd rather hear Fred sing his lyrics than anybody else. And for the film Royal Wedding, he inspired Burton Lane to write some of his finest music. Any picture that Astaire was in would be something I would want to do. I've been a great fan of Astaire's all my life, and to have had an opportunity to uh, do a, a score for him uh, was something any composer would give his eye teeth for. And I felt that way and still feel that way. I, he, he was one of the greatest musical talents uh, we've ever had. Also, this was an unusual opportunity for me because it was the first time I had ever worked with Alan Lerner, superb lyric writer. I picked up Alan one day. Uh, he was staying at the Bel Air Hotel to go to the studio, which was about 12 minutes away. And he said, you know, Fred Astaire likes to do uh, songs that have a, a real vaudeville quality to it. He says, what do you think of this idea? And he told me the title. 
And I said, gee, I think that's marvelous. And I think, and instantly I said, and I think it should have a tune like this. How could you believe me when I said I love you when you know I've been a liar all my life? He said, not something like that, that. And the song, we finished the song in 12 minutes. I mean, when we got to the, it's probably the fastest lyric he ever wrote. How could you believe me when I said I love you when you know I've been a liar all my life? You've had that reputation since you was a youth. You must have been insane to think I'd tell you the truth. How could I believe you when you said we'd marry? Why, you know I'd rather hang than have a wife. I know I said I'd make you mine. Now wouldn't you know that I would go for that old line? How could you believe me when I said I love you when you know I've been a liar? You sure have been. A double-crossing liar A double-crossing liar I'm a doggone cheating liar The longest song title in film history. One of the less significant achievements at MGM. One reason why songwriters felt happier there was that the musicals unit was headed by Arthur Freed, a lyricist turned producer. In 1952, he hired Betty Comden and Adolph Green to write a picture around an old song of his, first heard in the Hollywood Review of 1929. The assignment to write uh, the movie, Singing in the Rain, was given to us by our producer, who was Arthur Freed, who had been a lyricist with Nancy Herb Brown, and we were handed a stack of sheet music, and he said, kids, write a movie called Singing in the Rain and get all my songs into it. And that's all we had to begin with. When you're conceiving the story, then you write the songs as they seem to come out of the story, coming out of character, coming out of situation. This way you have the songs first, then you have to create the situations. All we knew was that somewhere we'd have to write a scene where it would be raining and a guy would be singing. <laughs> I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feel, and I'm happy again. I'm laughing at clouds so dark up above And the sun's in my heart and I'm ready for love Let the stormy clouds chase everyone from the place Come on with the rain, I've a smile on my face I'll walk down the lane with a happy refrain Just singing, singing in the rain Dancing in the rain I'm happy again I'm singing and dancing in the rain. The 
just played songs over and picked songs and finally decided to put the story in the period in which most of these songs were written, early days of sound and sound musicals. Moses Supposes we wrote with Roger Edens. That grew out of the story itself. It was a story number and uh, possibly based on our, our own knowledge, I once had to take some quick diction lessons to audition for a show and it included Moses Supposes and <laughs> Simple Caesar Sipcher Snifter. <laughs> We drew from life. <laughs> Moses supposes his toes are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. But Moses, he noses, his toes aren't roses, as Moses supposes his toes to be. Moses supposes his toes are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. A Moses is a Mose. A rose is a rose. A toes is a toes. Hoop-de-doody-doodle. Moses supposes his toes are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. For Moses, he noses, his toes aren't roses, as Moses supposes his toes to be. Moses Singing in the Rain is the Hollywood musical at its peak of perfection. Not just because of the songs and dances, but also because of the screenplay. Previously, brilliant songs by Kern, Berlin, Porter had been beached in the most appalling plots and witless dialogue. Comden and Green, authors as well as lyricists, made the bits between the songs worth watching. There was wit, charm, good characterization, with numbers arising naturally rather than being clumsily shoehorned in. Comden and Green followed Singing in the Rain with another masterpiece, The Bandwagon, and then, just as they'd got it right, it all came to an end. The kind of original screen musicals were gone, which had their own special spontaneity and invention that uh, seemed to revert to a stage plays filmed as if they were ready for television. And the, the, the industry changed so much then. I think it, it didn't have a lot to do with the fact that the uh, whole studio system had broken down somewhat. and big studios that had great departments, music departments and arrangers and costumes and such, you know, people who were there on call all the time. It was a going industry. And there was none like MGM's department, yeah. And, extraordinary. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think Roger Edens, who you named, probably had a lot to do with it. He got a lot of people into the Freed department and wonderful orchestrators and arrangers like uh, Connie Salinger and Lonnie Hayton and Adolf Deutsch and there was just a, a sound that identified the MGM musicals, especially in the 1950s. I just listen to them now and yeah. I still, oh, I mean. Yeah, a great sound. <laughs> oh. <laughs> In 1943, Rodgers and Hammerstein had revolutionized the Broadway musical with Oklahoma. And since then, more and more composers and lyricists had been drawn back from Hollywood to New York, where revitalized theater offered ambitious writers the chance to expand far beyond what Hollywood allowed. 
It was for Broadway that Burton Lane wrote his greatest score, Finian's Rainbow, with Yip Harburg. And when he returned to Hollywood as a composer and producer at Paramount, he found the atmosphere far from convivial. The head of the studio was a man uh, whose name was uh, Y. Frank Freeman. And we used to say, Why Frank Freeman? <laughs> Why Frank Freeman? Freeman was the head of Paramount, and he was the clearinghouse for all the studios. And when I say clearinghouse, anybody who was going to be employed by any studio, they had to clear it through Y. Frank Freeman. He would check to see whether they had been named in Red Channels or in any of the committees investigating communism in Hollywood. So I went to see him, and uh, he wanted to know if I belonged to any of those organizations. So I said, well, I'm a member of the Automobile Club, you know. <laughs> anyway, one thing led to another. It, there, there was nothing that I said that uh, he could challenge. And finally, I told him that I wanted to, I would love to do Finian's Rainbow. And uh, Freeman said, that, that was written by the communist. And he had Yip down as a communist. After being blacklisted, Yip Harburg never wrote another song for Hollywood. And although McCarthyism touched Broadway too, he nonetheless worked there steadily through the 50s. As for Finian's Rainbow, well, plans were made to make an animated version with an all-star cast, but the project was abandoned when one of the participants was named before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Still, the arranger, Nelson Riddle, and one of the stars, Frank Sinatra, did retrieve one number from the film that never was. I look at you and suddenly Something in your eyes I see Soon begins bewitching me It's that old devil moon That you stole from the skies It's that old devil moon in your eyes You and your glance Make this romance Too hot to handle Stars in the night Blazing their light Can't hold a candle To your razzle-dazzle You Got me flying high and magic carpet ride full of butterflies inside wanna cry wanna croon wanna laugh like a loon it's that old devil moon in your Finian's Rainbow did eventually make it to the screen in 1968, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Burton Lane did not enjoy it. It was a, a horror. 
Uh, I certainly wouldn't want to go to see it. I don't blame anybody else for not wanting to go. There wasn't one true second, not a second, that was true to the intent or what we had on the stage in, in that film. In the 60s, Hollywood gradually concentrated its dwindling resources on filming stage shows. Broadway's golden age, the period from Oklahoma to Fiddler on the Roof, should have provided some glorious movies, but all too often the film versions were bloated and lacklustre. Julie Stein doesn't care for the film of Funny Girl, for example, even though it retained its Broadway star, Barbara Streisand. Don't tell me not to live, just sit and putter. Life's candy and the sun's a ball of butter. Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade. Don't tell me not to fly, I simply got to. If someone takes a spill, it's me and not you. Who told you you're allowed to rain on my Perfection, or freckle on the nose of life's complexion, the cinder or the shiny apple of its heart. I gotta fly once, I gotta try once, only can die once, right, sir? Ooh, life is juicy, juicy, and you see, I gotta have my bite, sir. Get ready for me, love, cause I'm a comer. I simply gotta march, my heart's a drummer. Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade. The casting of uh, Omar Sharif is completely wrong. Sinatra would have been better in that part. The value of those two people singing in one album, they don't understand that, you know. So the picture didn't win an Academy Award, remember? Why didn't it win an Academy Award? Because they interpolated my man. How they made a self-pitting woman out of Fanny. Fanny was a strong part. In the end of Funny Girl on the stage, she says, I'll bring my band out, she said, but nobody's going to rain on my parade. That was the end of the stage. Strong. I'll go on and I'll do without Nicky Arnstein. I'll be a strong woman, which is in keeping of the times. But in the movie, she's saying, oh, my man, I love and cried all day. You know, it cost me a lot. What do I, that old thing. And made a whimpering woman out of her. And this show went down the hill. Even worse was the film treatment of what many regard as the finest of all Broadway shows, Julie Stein's Gypsy, which gave Ethel Merman the best role of her career. You got nothing to 
just you wait. That lucky star I talk about is due. Honey, everything's coming up. Roses for me and for you. They annihilated Gypsy, annihilated. They only used about seven or eight of the songs. They casted terribly. What was that, Rosalind? Ros Russell, who's a lovely actress, wonderful star and all that, was not that woman because she's a self-pitying woman. Ros played her self-pity. He needed somebody tough. You can do it. All you need is a hand. We can do it. Mama is gonna see to it. Curtain up, light the light. We got nothing to hit but the heights. I can tell. Wait and see. There's the bell. Follow me, and nothing's gonna stop us till we're through. Honey, everything's coming up. Roses and daffodils. Every. Things coming up, sunshine and Santa Claus. Everything's gonna be bright lights and lollipops. Everything's coming up, roses for me and for you. God, life is too short to have some office boy tell you here's a song, or some fellow who doesn't know a C from a D or a C major scale tell you I don't like that song. Man who can't, hasn't any knowledge of music. Man who's in the brewery business running a studio, or a radio business running a studio, he's gonna tell you what's a good script, or he's gonna tell you what's a good song. Well, Julie Stein's old partner, Sammy Kahn, and Johnny Mercer, and others stayed on in Hollywood, adapting as best they could to the new circumstances. But the new generation of songwriters found little work there. One of the exceptions was Cy Coleman, and he was given his chance, not by a studio boss, but by Cary Grant. It was peculiar the way he did, because a, a publicist at Capitol Records sent him my album, for what reason I didn't know, because he was not a disc jockey, but I was very happy that she did. And he wanted to meet me, and um, we met at, uh, at his bungalow at Uni on the lot at Universal Studios. And um, he sang all my songs, and he just couldn't have been a more delightful and sympathetic and, how can I say, he was uh, somebody who wanted to help, he wanted to do something for me. He said he liked the way I wrote, and he said, one day I'm going to call you to do a picture. And I thought to myself, well, that's wonderful if he does. That'd be just fabulous, and if he doesn't, I've had lunch with Cary Grant. Anyway, he did, and uh, I scored the film Father Goose, and in it, uh, I had to find the main theme, and it was um, leaving the commissary again. And we had been singing, he'd sang the old English music hall songs that he'd remembered, and he felt that it should be something like that. And uh, I'd been well indoctrinated before the end of the lunch with them. And we walked out of the commissary. I said, he walks in that tempo. And that's exactly the tempo, that kind of jaunty tempo. 
And so I figured, well, you can't, you mustn't be hit over the head four times in a row to see what, you know, it's obvious. So I wrote, passed me by that afternoon in that tempo. I got me ten fine toes to wiggle in the sand. Lots of idle fingers snapped to my command. A lovely pair of heels that kicked to beat the band. Contemplating nature can be fascinating. Had to these a nose that I can thumb. By gum, have I? You tell the whole darn world if you don't happen to like it, deal me out. Thank you kindly, pass me by. Pass me by, pass me by. If you don't happen to like it, pass me by. Hollywood is a factory. It was a factory of theme songs for movies. Songwriters for many years lived off winning the Academy Award because they wrote a title song. I won one of those for Three Coins in a Fountain. But now it's an arranger's world. Do you know why all of a sudden the Hollywood scene of the song, you know, a lot of songs have stopped. We used to have tremendous songs. You know what I mean? Now you, sure, there's windmills on my mind, but you know, so what? I mean, you're not going to remember that as much as you remember. I don't want to walk without your baby. I mean, we'll put it that way. Or any of Frank Lessers or any of Johnny Mercer's. The Rangers came in, and they start writing the theme songs. And so you lost songs by Harry Warren. The last 20 years of Harry Warren's life, he wrote nothing because they didn't want to use his thing. They couldn't get a job, actually. It's pathetic. It, a lot of great songwriters out there. Sure, uh, certain fellas took over. The songs that were written with Johnny Mercer by Rangers, and Johnny did a lot of because those were the only people they wanted. They wouldn't, they wouldn't give him, let him write with Harry Warren when we wrote Chattanooga Choo Choo and all those One for My Babies and things with Harold Arlen. They didn't want Harold Arlen. They didn't want Sammy Fain. They didn't want any of those fellas anymore. They were going to become that. And so they becoming that didn't become that because you lost Harold Arlen on the screen. You lost Harry Warren's music, Lullaby of Broadway and all those fabulous songs and so that's what diminished the quality of popular songs in the, in the movies hey Joe 
Yeah? It's quarter to three. There's no one in the place except you and me. So set em up, Joe. I've got a little story you ought to know. We're drinking, my friend, to the end of a brief episode. Make it one for my baby and one more for the road. Perhaps they don't write them like that anymore. Or if they do, it's not for motion pictures. After almost 60 years in both fields, Burton Lane thinks the distinction between stage and screen is a simple one. When you're doing a show, uh, the authors are the important people. They're important because they're writing it. In Hollywood, it's a director's field. You're being hired as a writer. You're being hired as a composer. You're asked to do things that you might not want to do. Of course, you have the right to say no. But if you're earning a living, how many times are you going to say no? I don't think I've worked on two pictures that I really had respect for, maybe two. Also, uh, you didn't have much choice in Hollywood unless you're in Irving Berlin with a big, tremendous reputation, you know, and you pick your spots. But as someone, as uh, the way my career went, I was never a star out there. Uh, I had a certain amount of success. But the pictures I was assigned to do, I did, you know. And, uh, Spawn of the North. Oh, boy. <laughs> I asked Frank... Uh, Lesser, what's a humpback salmon? I did. We wrote a song called "I Like Humpback Salmon." I said, "What is that?" <laughs> and you and you know when you write a song called "I Like Humpback Salmon," there's not going to be a standard. I suppose <laughs> you sure do. <laughs> Come on, Annie. Let's go to the movies. Let's go see the stars. <laughs> Cowboy heroes, cops and robbers, glamour and strife, bigger than life. Sitting in the darkness What a world to see Let's go to the movies Any wait and see Today the screen musical is a dead genre and there's no longer the necessary expertise to make them anyway. But once in a while, if it's a really big Broadway hit, someone will pick up the film rights, as they did with Charles Strauss's musical Annie, although he had mixed feelings about the final result. I would say my feelings are all in hindsight that we shouldn't have taken the $10 million and sold it. But we did, and it was, and it is a lot of money. And uh, what we gave up was doing the film itself or not having a film and having the show have another kind of uh, life although as a matter of fact it does still have a a tremendous life uh, in the live theater but uh, what happens no excuse is that you're sick of you know you've been working on it for seven years we actually had in the case of uh, more than that the case of Annie and uh, it's very hard to get everybody together and say now let's make a wonderful movie everybody's very content to go to the Virgin Islands or something, uh, though I didn't do that. I went on to another show. But uh, one wishes that uh, that one were a part of it in the way that uh, Betty and Adolf were when they made Singing in the Rain, or that uh, when Arthur Freed was producing those great MGM musicals, that there was that musical staff. I wish I were part of it. Alan came in at the very end, and, and Gigi, and 
an American in Paris, which after all he wrote the screenplay for. Now it's a different world. It's people trying to uh, invent a, a culture. It is not the, at least in musicals. Mm. Although I don't know that, you know, in 10 years, 15 years, works like Flashdance may not be considered the, uh, the Fred Astaire musicals of the day. I, I don't know. Well, I think the point about Flashdance is highly moot, but you never can tell. The days when each studio had dozens of salaried songwriters beavering away on the lot are gone, and probably for good. But they did leave us a wonderful catalogue of songs, even if many of them were even then nostalgic for New York, Broadway rhythm, lullaby of Broadway, Broadway melody. Still, while it lasted, hooray for Hollywood, as Johnny Mercer put it. For the moment, the song is ended. But as for the future, who knows? That's 